My name is Drew Ray and this is episode 42 of Disastercast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. Speaking of scary things, as part of my move to Griffith University in Brisbane, I had to hand in my laptop and leave my desktops behind. So I've been bereft of computer power for the past week and a half. Due to poor planning and extreme business beforehand, that means that you've been shortchanged one episode of Disastercast. This is that episode, entitled Lightning Strikes. I'm going to make the break up to you with some hopefully interesting and challenging material over the coming weeks, though. In the meantime, as a quick piece of advertising, we've started processing enrolments for the Graduate Certificate in Safety Leadership starting next year. There's plenty of time, but if you're in Australia, that doesn't mean you should delay until the last minute either. As a flavour of the people I've been speaking to this week, either as part of the enrolments or just the surrounding research and teaching activities, I've met a project management and safety engineering consultant, a fly-in, fly-out mining safety team leader, a construction safety officer, a patient safety risk manager, an expert in organisational communication and resilience, a rail systems assurance manager, an organisational psychologist, and a process safety teacher and practitioner. One of them gave me a stern reprimand about recent slackness with episodes, transcripts and links. Hi Steve, which I'll do my best to address as soon as I have a laptop again. Isn't it amazing, despite all the networking, conferences and social media available to us, just how rubbish safety practitioners are at talking to each other? We even invent special terms to explain how we're not like the other folk and want nothing to do with them. I'm a safety engineer. I'm a safety scientist. I'm a system safety person. I'm occupational health and safety. I'm behavioural safety. I'm interested in safety management. I do patient safety. I'm in charge of process safety. No, I don't do system safety. I do safety systems. It's different. Why are we afraid to just say we do safety? And I'm not excluding myself from this. I've realised I'm at pains to point out that I'm a system safety engineer. Is it that I'm proud of my standing as an engineer and my systems approach? Or am I just embarrassed to have people associate me with those other people who don't do my sort of safety? Now, some of the distinctions are genuinely useful particularly if we're distinguishing areas of competence. There are times when it's important to know that my industrial experience focuses on complex physical equipment, usually involving software, and that I'd be a danger to myself and others if you let me unescorted onto a construction site. At other times, though, the distinctions are a sort of tribalism, downplaying and dismissing the skills and expertise of others. Let's be really honest. I know a lot of occupational health and safety people who have a very simplistic view of risk, who think that compliance is an end unto itself, and who think that a just culture is blaming, shaming and retraining, instead of recognising that we're dealing with human beings. Sometimes, when I call myself a safety engineer, it's to disown any association with such people. In the process, though, I conveniently forget all the systems engineers I know who think that standards are a substitute for good practice, that management systems are tools for ordering around lesser intellects, 
and that humans are just poorly performing system components who should be replaced by automation as soon as technology permits. It's not so much that systems engineers and safety practitioners have got different skills, they just make mistakes in different directions. A question I often get asked in my safety management classes is whether occupational health and safety should be combined with system safety management. Most organisations face challenges related to safety of their products, safety of their staff, and safety of their plant and materials. All of these need looking after, and the management and leadership concerns are very similar, if not identical. At the project and site level, sure, assessing and ensuring the safety of an aircraft engine is a different beast from assessing and ensuring the safety of a welding job. But at higher levels, the only reason to separate them is to make sure they both get proper attention. Arguably, the true difference between system safety and personal safety is the type of institutional mistakes that are made. Personal safety managers often focus too much on the immediate people and miss opportunities to improve the tools, systems and operational environments. System safety managers focus so much on the processes and platforms that they sometimes neglect the people. Both have a common bad habit of adopting authoritarian, transactional or instrumentalist leadership styles totally at odds with the core principles of safety as a discipline. Why are we here if not to make people's lives better? And if safety is such a dirty word, that even people within the safety community find excuses to stand apart from other safety people, just how good a job are we doing, really? Okay, I was going to kick off the next bit of the podcast by saying that as compensation for listening to my latest diatribe, it was time to talk about some accidents. Then I realised how twisted that actually sounded. Some lecturers give out minties, twinkies or chocolates as incentives. I reward you with horrible tragedies. Here we go. On 9th of May 1976, a Boeing 747 military transport plane, owned and operated by the Imperial Iranian Air Force, was descending towards Barajas Airport near Madrid. The plane was travelling through severe thunderstorm cells, and it suddenly fell out of control and tumbled around 6,000 feet before it crashed into the ground. Since this was a military flight, not a civilian one, the Spanish authorities delegated the investigation to the Iranian authorities, who, since this was a Boeing plane, decided to let the Americans, the NTSB, figure out what had happened. Witnesses had observed the plane being struck by lightning and the left wing falling off. So the whole wing was packed off to the United States for analysis. They quite literally cut up the remains of the wing into little pieces, packed it into several other aircraft for transport, fumigated it and imported it through US customs, then put it back together again in a hangar. After the investigation, there were two main plausible theories left why the wing fell off. I'm not sure which theory is scarier. I'll leave it to you to judge. The first theory put forward by NASA is that it was too windy. Normally, a wing subject to vertical gusts will stall before it fails structurally, but with the right combination of headwind, horizontal gusts and vertical gusts, the wing could have just been ripped right off. The second hypothesis 
is that the plane was struck by lightning. This happens more often than you might think, about once per plane per year, and it isn't hugely dangerous. The metal shell of the aircraft acts as a shield. It conducts the electricity around the dangerous bits to a point like the wingtips where it can discharge and continue on its merry way. However, when you put that much voltage through the outside, it generates a strong magnetic field. This in turn can induce currents in interior components. It's one of the rules of the electrical universe. A changing electric current generates a magnetic field. A changing magnetic field generates an electric current. So two things don't actually have to be touching for one to cause current in the other. That's how radios work, by the way. Except that radio signals aren't usually strong enough to blow up a plane. Lightning, on the other hand, can induce current sufficient to create a 2000 volt potential difference between components on the inside of the plane. And that sort of differential is sufficient to cause arcing. Like a miniature lightning bolt, if you will. It's not that the big lightning bolt itself was dangerous, but the lightning caused a magnetic field, which caused an induced current, which caused a potential difference, which caused arcing. Inside the fuel tank. The technical term for what followed is overpressure, which is just a fancy way of saying that the vapour in the fuel tank blew up. This in turn destroyed the integrity of the wing surface, letting it get torn apart by the wind. Now, the investigation helpfully points out that lightning can't be that much of a threat to fuel tanks, or this would be happening a lot more often. They do point out five previous cases of lightning strikes with subsequent wing explosions on five different types of aircraft. They also point out that while they think the lightning hypothesis is the most likely, the NASA analysis does demonstrate that it is totally plausible for a thunderstorm to tear the wing off a 747. Thanks, NTSB. I feel so much more comfortable flying now. On 26th of March, 1987, an Atlas Centaur rocket was sitting on the launch pad at Cape Canaveral. There were clouds overhead and the launch crew were worried. Weather balloons had been sent up, but in the rough weather most of the balloons had burst before they made it high enough to collect launch data. In particular, the ground crew were concerned about icing. If the clouds were right at freezing temperature, then as the rocket passed through the clouds, ice would form and the rocket would unbalance. There were clear launch guidelines that said that if the clouds were more than 6,000 feet deep at freezing temperature, the launch wouldn't go ahead. Fortunately, just before the launch deadline, a plane landed that had been through the clouds and it hadn't had any icing problems. So it was okay, the launch could go ahead. As the tall rocket passed through the clouds, it acted like a giant lightning rod, triggering a cloud-to-ground strike right through the rocket. Massive current, magnetic field, induced current, you know the drill by now. In this case, despite the fact that this was a rocket, almost entirely made up of fuel tanks, that wasn't actually the problem. The induced current changed one memory location inside the computer controlling the rocket. Changing that memory location caused the rocket to tip over, and it broke up from aerodynamic stress. So those are two pretty extreme events involving lightning. Around 90% of fatal lightning strikes, though, 
affect just one person. In that respect, lightning is what I like to think of as a slow-motion disaster. It kills lots of people, but one by one, so it gets less attention than the big disasters. Of the incidents with reported locations, most lightning fatalities are out in the open, under trees, or in the water, in descending order of likelihood. Playing golf gets a whole reporting category of its own, coming ahead of people operating machinery, people using telephones, or people repairing or standing near large antennae in the middle of a thunderstorm. Here's a few more of the bigger fatal accidents, though. China, 1989. Lightning hit a fuel tanker whilst it was inside an oil depot. Tanker caught fire, spread to the depot, 19 deaths. Russia, 1990. An oil tank again. This time, because lightning has a bad habit of hitting during storms, the strong winds spread the fire to other tanks into the nearby forest. Milford Haven, 1994. Another hydrocarbon processing plant, this time operated by Texaco. Just before 9am on 24th July 1994, a lightning strike caused a fire in one of the processing units. This wasn't the direct cause of the explosion which this story will lead to, but it was what we call the initiating event, the first disturbance which signals that this was not going to be a normal day at the office. As part of the emergency shutdown, hydrocarbon flow through the cracking unit stopped. None of the vessels are actually supposed to be completely empty, even in shutdown, so a series of valves began to close, preventing fluid from draining out of all of the vessels. Once the flow resumed, all these valves opened up again. Well, actually, not all of them. One valve in particular, which we'll call valve B, stayed closed. This is the valve that let a tank called the debutinizer empty into another tank called the naphtha splitter. So the debutinizer was filling up with liquid whilst the naphtha splitter was being starved. To make things worse, the control system was getting incorrect signals from valve B. According to the control system, valve B was open and everything was working normally. Inside the control room, there were status indications for all of the equipment, and there was a list of all the alarms, including the status of valve B and the debutinizer and the naphtha splitter. But there was no display showing the big picture. What I imagine when I think of a control room is a screen with all of the tanks joined together showing how full each one is and how much is flowing between them. There was nothing like that. If the operators had that picture, they could have quickly worked out that even though valve B was supposedly open, nothing was flowing from the debutinizer to the naphtha splitter. No, no flow, valve mustn't be open, send someone to fix it. Easy. Instead, they could only call up part of the overall process at a time. They could see that the debutinizer was misbehaving and building up pressure. There was nothing calling their attention at all to the naphtha splitter, so no reason to bring up that particular screen, or to compare it to the debutinizer screen. As the debutinizer filled up with liquid, pressure increased and had to be let out. 
Three times, in fact, during the afternoon, the debutinizer vented into the blowdown and flare system. Unlike at Texas City, a similar accident which we discussed in episode 36, all of the equipment this time was connected to flare towers. Rather than having a separate tower for each piece of equipment, they had towers for different types of product. The sweet tower dealt with light hydrocarbons. The sour tower dealt with gases that had significant amounts of hydrogen sulfide. And the acid tower dealt with mixed material that needed processing before it could be safely burned off. Just like at Texas City though, the blowdown system was really designed to handle overflow gases, not huge amounts of liquid. Because there were only three towers for lots of different types of equipment, the piping between them was fairly complicated too. So even in an overflow situation, pressure needed to be carefully managed so there was smooth flow through this piping to the tower. In this case, as the liquid from the third venting traversed through one of four 90 degree elbow bends, the pipework failed. It didn't help that changes a few years earlier to reduce the environmental impact of the plant took away the ability to automatically remove liquid from the blowdown system. It didn't help that the pipes, not meant to handle liquid in the first place, were known to be corroded. 20 tonnes of hydrocarbon were released, a vapour cloud formed, and an explosion quickly followed. Regular listeners of DisasterCast won't be surprised to hear that the explosion and fires damaged the firefighting hall, the medical centre, and one of two emergency control rooms. There were no fatalities though, partly through luck, but also because there was solid contingency planning in place, and the facilities within range of the explosion were designed to cope with the blast damage. The subsequent investigation found that the design of the control room was a very important factor. It wasn't just the lack of an overview display, there was also an alarm system that just dumped a long list of unprioritized warnings to the operators. And lots of unreliable instruments, which meant the operators had to form complicated mental models, including disturbed processes and incorrect reporting of those processes. Their training and their equipment put together didn't let them step back and form a clear picture of what was going on in time to react appropriately. Charles Perrault would have called this a normal accident. The tight coupling and interactive complexity of the system meant that the operators weren't able to comprehend the problems, so they made things worse instead of better. A more modern analysis would see this as an illustration of resilience. The lightning strike provided an initial disturbance to the system. The equipment and the operators were put under unusual stress. Good business and good safety both required a return to normal operating conditions as quickly and smoothly as possible. It didn't have to be a lightning strike which caused the problem. And it was probably impossible to list out and protect against every single thing that could go wrong. Instead, we needed to build positive safety features into the system to make it more resilient. Some of these features could have been pure hardware. A blowdown system with more capacity and less crucial timing and balance to buy people time to react. The supposed improvements had actually made this part of the system far less resilient in the interests of environmental efficiency. 
other resilient features related to the support provided to the operators. Displays that gave increased situational awareness and alarm systems which took care of the prioritisation and interpretation would have increased resilience. Cross-training the operators so they had a better understanding of the overall system and giving them practice in this sort of emergency would also help. And finally, and quite literally, if the elbow bend hadn't been corroded, it might have flexed and returned to shape instead of shattering. Physical resilience. Resilience is one of the themes of safety differently and safety to thinking. It's good to anticipate hazards and to design systems and people that can cope with them, but it isn't enough. We also need to look at safety as a positive attribute of our systems and people and look at how we can build in the features that give resilience into the systems. That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. A cheery hello to Steve and Andy for your recent support. And if you have rated, reviewed, cited or otherwise spread the word about DisasterCast and I haven't acknowledged you yet, feel free to drop me a line and berate me for my slackness. If you haven't rated, reviewed, cited or otherwise encouraged to listen, then I think you must be the sort of pragmatic person who thinks money speaks louder than words. And you can follow the link to Patreon from the homepage at disastercast.co.uk. One dollar an episode will buy you a guilt-free listening experience. Come on, it's a nice looking world you've got there and we wouldn't want to see anything bad happen to it, would we? Disastercast. It's planetary insurance. Keep safe.